0: Law school promises a great many things to future lawyers. An exceptional score on the LSAT has the potential to open doors to the most prestigious universities. But as we learned in episode one, perhaps that admissions process doesn't exactly make the most sense. Now we're turning our sights toward the actual classroom and the century-old curriculum that promises to shape your legal mind. Is that the most effective way of teaching for all students? And if not, how can it be better? This is what we aim to uncover in the second episode of our series, The Law School Promise. Welcome back to Law 360 Explores, Episode 2. I'm Stephen Trader, a reporter here at Law360, and I'm joined by my co-host, who totally got into Harvard because what? Like it's hard? It's Amber McKinney.
1: Oh, Steve, I wish I'd gotten into Harvard like Elle Woods, but in fact, it is hard. So I didn't go there, but I did go to law school and I want to talk about it.
0: Yeah, well, I had to throw in a legally blonde joke in there. It, it'll be the first of many, I promise, in this episode. But Well,
1: great, because I love that movie.
0: Yeah, I'm I'm happy to call on your experience from law school in this episode. We are going back into the law school classroom, and I know that brings back a lot of feels for you. It was a good experience, a bad experience. We're going to talk about all of it in this episode.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been several years for me since I was in law school, but the dread you feel about being called on to talk about the facts of a case that maybe you didn't read ahead of class it that never really leaves you. So I do have some flashbacks.
0: Amber, you didn't do the reading?
1: <laughs> oh, Steve, uh, don't put me on the spot. Um, but we are going to talk about this exact thing. We're going to talk about sort of some of the bad stuff in the curriculum. And also, we are going to talk about some possible solutions because there are ways to make it even better.
0: Right. Yeah, I'm excited for it. So I think first, before we get started... Let's just talk about the basics of what a typical 1L classroom looks like. Let's call it 100 students in an auditorium. They're fanned out across the room. There's a professor centered at the front middle. Everyone has their appellate casebooks open, right? And, well, the professor may have a couple of questions for you.
2: We use the Socratic method here. I call on you, ask you a question, and you answer it. Why don't I just give you a lecture? Because through my questions, you learn to teach yourselves. Through this method of questioning, answering, questioning, answering, we seek to develop in you the ability to analyze that vast complex of facts that constitute the relationships of members within a given society. Questioning and answering times, you may feel that you have found the correct answer. I assure you that this is a total delusion on your part. You will never find the correct, absolute and final answer. In my classroom, there is always another question, another question to follow your answer. As yes, you're on a treadmill, my little questions spin the tumblers of your mind. You're on an operating table. My little questions are the fingers probing your brain. We do brain surgery here. You teach yourselves the law, but I train your mind. You come in here with a skull full of mush, and you leave thinking like a lawyer.
0: Amber, I think that clip applies not just to law school, but to this podcast. I mean... We do brain surgery here, right?
1: I mean, we're either doing brain surgery or we're the people with the mushy brains. I'm not sure which direction this is going.
0: (laughs) Tumblers are rolling in somebody's mind. We don't really know. (laughs) But uh, that is a clip from the famous Hollywood legal movie, The Paper Chase. And that is the infamous Professor Kingsfield. And I'm sure that most likely just sends chills down the spines of law students everywhere.
1: That's definitely a pretty dramatic Hollywood rendition, and it's not exactly how your average professor talks, but there's definitely a kernel of truth in there about how the Socratic method works. I did want to take one step back as we start into this topic to just talk about the Socratic method. It's named after the ancient Greek philosopher Socrates And the idea there is that you teach students best by asking question after question, building up their own critical thinking skills as they go through answering them. There's a lot of reasons law school professors love this teaching style. For one, they say it's pretty similar to a cross-examination in an actual courtroom and that it can help students see the contradictions in ideas or arguments and sort of work toward more solid conclusions. Another benefit from proponents is that they say it shows law students what the most compelling arguments are on both sides of a legal question, which is pretty useful as a way to look at material when you're actually practicing law. But despite those reasons to use it, it isn't without its problems.
3: I think a lot of students often call it hide the ball, right, where the professor has the answers and through question and answers is trying to lure students into thinking, to pushing their thinking, to expanding how they think about the law. Um, But it is professor-centered, and the professor typically holds all the power, meaning that if the professor wants to suspend a line of dialogue or switch to a different person, and that's different from other forms of participation, which would be more student-led, where students ask more questions, or where students work through a problem set together and try to reach a conclusion.
0: Jamie Abrams is a professor at the American University, Washington College of Law, and she's probably one of the foremost thinkers in terms of reforming legal education, particularly the Socratic method, and she sees some real issues with the method as it's used in the law school classroom. First of all, she says it lacks transparency. So, Amber, think about a routine school assignment. Usually it's pretty clear what the goal is in order to succeed, you know, how well you can accomplish X. Result in why? Great, right? Abrams says that the Socratic method isn't really like that. It's very freewheeling. The goal is this nebulous idea of kind of learning case law, and there's no indication of what success looks like. But the other, perhaps even more important problem, according to Abrams, is that the Socratic method creates a dominant view of how the law works, and it devalues students' own organic questioning of it
3: if we're teaching a standard of like the reasonably prudent person, what that means might differ from one community to another. What is reasonable in one rural community versus what is reasonable in a more urban community. There's lots of room for variation, dialogue and contesting the standard norms of the law. But if the professor sort of holds the, the the rails on the boundaries of what can be talked about, it can become a pretty marginalizing experience for students, particularly students of color, non-traditional students, women students, um, who are sort of forced to perform in a very, very public way by reciting back these laws without getting the chance to to contest it a little bit more and push it themselves, which is organically what the Socratic method was supposed to be. It's supposed to be student questioning teacher to understand the law for themselves.
0: So going back to that clip that we played from the paper chase earlier, again, yes, it is a dramatic rendition, but this actually comes up a lot in conversations about legal education reform. I mean, Jamie even makes a point in her paper that she jokingly calls it canceling Kingsfield because she says that the underlying message really isn't that far off from real life. And it's really troubling.
3: The phrasing that really sticks for me is from the paper chase where Professor Kingsfield, the fictional character in the movie, says that students come into his Socratic classroom with a skull full of mush, meaning they're like a blank slate and they offer no value to the classroom. And that's that is a really problematic way to teach law because really what the law is is a toolbox of strategies that lawyers use and and wield at various points for their clients and their causes. And so to, to take away that student experience and say, leave that at the door and then come learn this noble study of law is missing the training of lawyering, the, the verb, the action of using that those laws to help um, the communities that, you, that our students go on to serve.
1: There are a lot of toxic practices that stem from the Socratic method, at least according to Jamie. Steve, I do have a question for you. Did you do the reading for today's podcast?
0: Oh, Amber, I didn't realize we had an assignment.
1: Uh, You're in big trouble in my classroom, sir. Um, This is sort of how it goes in some law school classrooms where professors are using the Socratic method to ensure that students have done the reading for the class, that they're answering things really confidently.
2: The law is reason free from passion. Does anyone know who spoke those immortal words? Yes. Aristotle. Are you sure? Yes. Would you be willing to stake your life on it? I think so. What about his life? I don't know. Well, I recommend knowing before speaking. The law leaves much room for interpretation, but very little for self-doubt. And you were right. It was Aristotle.
0: Amber, we're checking off all the Hollywood legal movies. We had the paper chase earlier. We got Legally Blonde in there, which we're both very excited about. One of our favorites.
1: Yeah, one of my favorites.
0: But just getting back to how students in real legal classrooms actually react to those cold calls, I spoke with Catherine Young. She's a sociologist and a legal professor at the George Washington University Law School. Amber, your alma mater, big shout out. Thank you. And so Catherine is a researcher, and she wrote a book called How to Be Sort of Happy in Law School, for which she surveyed more than a 1,000 students on their mental health and well-being during their law school years. And she discovered a couple of things that really gave her pause.
4: So one thing I found was that between um, one in four and one in five students feel what I would call extreme trepidation around cold calling. Um, And by extreme, I don't mean they're nervous and they think about it sometimes. I mean that it completely shapes their law school experience. So that's a a large number of students. Um, What was particularly interesting was that nearly all of those students was a woman. And that's problematic. Um, Nearly all of those women were women of color. And that's problematic. And it's not simply that, you know... um, Women of color, you know, aren't up for being, you know, for for engaging in like hard intellectual exchange. They 100% are. Um, where the fear and trepidation comes from is a sense that they're being judged by their peers, and in fact, they are being judged by their peers. We know this from all the sociological research. Women are judged more harshly. People of color are judged more harshly by others. So it it should come as no surprise that they feel like they're being judged harshly. In fact, they are.
0: That wasn't the only pattern that Catherine identified. She also found socioeconomic and background differences here as well. So someone from a more well-heeled background, maybe they have a lawyer in the family, they understand maybe a little bit better that cold calls are a tool for learning, but don't actually matter for your grade that much. So they approach it much more casually. They're not too worried about how they look. And they just kind of process the information more holistically And then they focus on the final, which is really the most important. That's not really the case with first-generation students or students from lower socioeconomic status, according to Catherine. Those students, and particularly women, they're hyper-focused on performing well and fitting into this professional class. They're studying to answer cold calls, really diving into the details and trying to learn the case minutiae they're really not developing that broader understanding that's the most rewarding at the end of the day in terms of grades. Amber, does this check out with your experience in law school?
1: Steve, I feel like I'm in a therapy session right now. It hits so close to home for me. I don't have any lawyers in my family who could have clued me in on how I really shouldn't have wasted so much time prepping out of fear of being called on in class. I 100% fell into the trap of hyper-focusing on the minutiae to the detriment of seeing sort of the bigger picture, in large part because I didn't want to be embarrassed by a professor the way it goes down on Legally Blonde.
4: The Socratic method, not only is it not truly Socratic much of the time in the way that it's practiced on the ground, um, but it affects students differently. And what's troubling to me is that instead of rethinking the structure and thinking all right is this the very best way that we could teach students legal reasoning um what i see being done in terms of interventions is things like um i always think of this this thing i saw in the girl's guide to law school which basically says toughen up be more aggressive um which sends a message to women law students that the problem is not the system. The problem is your problem with the system. And if you want to be a real lawyer, gosh darn it, grow a thicker skin. What I don't see a lot of law professors at least doing is reflecting on like, wait a minute, actually, how good is the Socratic method and how good are cold calls at um, preparing students for what they're going to face in practice? How many times in practice are you sitting with 60 of your peers Waiting for a judge to see which lawyer they're going to call to argue a particular thing, right? I mean, that never happens. That's just not the way uh, you know law is practiced. So, uh, you know, there are other methods and modified Socratic methods that some professors use, um, like panel methods, that I think are are, are better in various ways. But um, my findings suggest that cold calls are harmful to women, particularly women of color in the classroom. Um, And that, as students perceive it, they don't really help them in terms of developing their their legal reasoning.
0: Before we get into some of the solutions to these problems, I think that we should talk for a second about the effects that some of these experiences have on students' mental health. And it's not a pretty picture. Um, There's all kinds of research indicating that law students have sky-high levels of anxiety and depression. There's alcoholism, self-harm. One surprising thing Catherine found in her survey was that the students who felt most unhappy all pretty much gave the same reason why. So their idea of what law school might be before they got in, it didn't really match the reality of what it actually is. They felt a sense of alienation from what brought them there. It didn't line up with how they wanted to be trained as lawyers. And they felt marginalized. They felt an enormous sense of pressure from things like one final.
1: I can confirm that my personal experience as a 1L was definitely a feeling of this is not what I expected it to be. And really, in some ways, a crisis of confidence that I think a lot of students have, mostly because so much hinges on not whether you can understand and know the material you're being taught, but more if you... Know just a little bit more than your peers, because everything's graded on such a straight curve and that creates a very distinct pressure.
0: Right. And Catherine says that those feelings are pretty much universal across law school rankings. Whether a student attends a top 14 school or a lower tier school, pretty much the law school experience itself is not much different from one school to the next.
1: I'm very curious, though, how does that relate to, say, a med student or an MBA student? Because those are also high-level, high-pressure educational programs.
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. I asked Catherine about that, and she and others have looked at this data. And across the board, first-year students' mental health, no matter what program, pretty much plummets. The difference, though, is that for law students, it doesn't really recover. So medical students bounce back, but law students are still anxious, still depressed, even as three L's.
4: The reasons for the not bouncing back have to do with the law school structure itself, and uh, has to do with things like being compared to other people. Um, has to do with things like a sense of you know intrinsic versus extrinsic motivation. Law school itself is designed is you know, almost guaranteed to produce what psychologist Carol Dweck calls a fixed mindset as opposed to a growth mindset, right? Students are um, socialized to believe that, you know, you're sort of either good at law or you're not, that your standing in your class actually says something about how good of a lawyer you're going to be. Um, And it's very difficult for students to keep their sense of self separate from, um, from these kind of external judgments about them that they perceive are happening. You know, I mean law students are also extraordinarily um risk averse. So I think that there's always this sense of not knowing where they're going to end up, particularly at the non-T 14s, not knowing where they're going to end up, not knowing whether they're going to be able to do what they want to do in the legal profession, right? I mean, a major theme from the book was that lots of students enter law school because they think there's some elements of the law that they would like to change. Then in law school, they realize that, oh, being a lawyer isn't about learning how to change the law by and large, right? It's about learning a system that you'll be working within. That's gutting for some students to realize.
0: Catherine says that a lot of people go to law school because they have a sense that certain things are unfair, and then they're shocked and alarmed when they find out that, substantive unfairness isn't really a topic that's discussed at law school, her research also uncovered another interesting and actually really troubling component of the law school's structure. So when I think of law school, I guess, having not gone there, I think of it as like a total shark tank, right? There's sabotage, there's backstabbing. Amber, you and I have talked off air about your own experience related to this.
1: Okay, so I'm pretty sure I've discussed this on our weekly podcast, Pro Se, but let me get into it again here. I have one experience from my one year where I was in a legal writing seminar and they insisted we not use online databases during your first semester. The logic was that you needed to understand how these um, books and, and treatises and everything work together, so learn it in the library. There was one assignment where a particular book was required to get the answer you needed to complete the assignment. And there was only one copy in the law school library. So when I went to go get the book, it was gone. One of the students in my class had used it and then intentionally moved it somewhere else in the library so no one else could find it.
0: When you tell this story, I'm just in such disbelief. I really didn't think things like that actually happened, that, that stuff only happened in the movies, but...
1: It could really, just be my bad luck. I will, in fairness, this is an anecdote, but I do think it points to maybe the kind of pressure that makes people act badly.
0: Right. And I, I, I'm sure that happens all over the place because, I mean, so in fairness to law schools, it seems like they know that there's a little bit of a stigma attached like that, that, that Uber competition. And they've really made some effort to promote collaboration. They recognize that people do better in school and in the profession when they're working together and that the practice of law really kind of requires that. And the students who spoke to Catherine in their survey reported being pleasantly surprised when they got to law school. I, they also were expecting the worst, but then found it was pretty normal and that other students were friendly and it was a welcoming atmosphere. Here's the rub though. Law school is inherently not a collaborative space for all the reasons that you said, Amber. I mean, the structure of it, one final, curved grades, coveted class ranking, those are all things that drive cutthroat competition. And so by the middle of the semester, those same students that had talked to Catherine were telling her that they were feeling that pressure.
4: I mean, there's a sense students feel that they're almost being gaslit, where on one hand, they're being told... Collaboration is important, and these people are your future colleagues, and you'll rely on each other and work together for the rest of your careers. At the same time, they're tested just by themselves. Very few classes, particularly the first year, um, require or allow them to work collaboratively, at least in any explicit way that's you know part of the class. Um, and they're graded against each other. So many students said things like, it literally doesn't matter how well I do. It only matters if I do better than other people.
1: So finally, we arrive at a pivotal question. Can any of this actually be fixed?
0: Well, first of all, there have been some really incredible innovations in legal education. There's experiential learning and clinic programs and formative assessments and externships and all kinds of ways that um, legal education reformers have told me that really build up student community and make it more inclusive. And all of that is very promising. Those progressive ideas don't solve the problems we've talked about like within the Socratic classroom, though. And Jamie Abrams thinks that that means it's a good time for legal education to really start assessing whether the Socratic method is effective or not.
3: What are we trying to do with it? And are we succeeding in it? Like the ABA has moved extensively in its accreditation standards towards outcomes based learning. So we should be Teaching to objectives. By the end of this course, I want students to be able to do X, Y, and Z, and I need to measure that students can do X, Y, and Z. And so I propose in um, my various writing projects that we need to be measuring effectiveness with an equity lens. So at the end of the course, can students do that? And if not, which students can't? And if we see trends and concerning patterns that align with the critiques, then we need to start reforming even more robustly. But holding, it's all about, for me, accountability and holding large-scale Socratic teaching accountable to meeting the needs of students to prepare them for the profession.
1: There are some obvious reasons why the Socratic method has lasted so long, and part of that that there's plenty of folks who are in legal education that find it useful, and Jamie Abrams says that's probably not going away anytime soon. So if we're not going to have a total overhaul and just throw out the Socratic method, her idea is to make changes within it, from something as simple as decentralizing the professor as the focus to instituting a set of values that basically govern the Socratic classroom, and make it a more standardized and transparent method of teaching.
3: I argue for values that are student-centered, skills-centered, client-centered, and community-centered. So small pivots that scale extensively. So instead of these abstract questions like what are the facts of this case? And you know, what was the holding of this case? Who called a lawyer? Why did they call a lawyer? What did they hope to get out of that client representation? What did the court actually give them? Did that meet their needs? So we could even use the same books that we're already using. We can still keep 100 people in the classroom if we can do so in a way that catalyzes other reforms by grounding the Socratic method in active lawyering that we bring to life through those cases, by grounding the Socratic method in the application of the concepts we're studying to the communities around us. So making more space for those conversations Does the reasonably prudent person standard align with your vision of community? And if it doesn't, why not? And what does that mean about your likelihood in the tort system?
0: So in thinking about changing some of the structure of the law school classroom, there have been some circumstances recently that have allowed for the chance to try some of that out. I mean, I don't think anyone looks back on the time of COVID with fond memories but at the very least, the online shift presented some opportunities for assessment of how law classes are taught. And Professor Rachel Moran took full advantage of that. She is a distinguished and chancellor's professor of law at the University of California, Irvine. She helped found that law school there. And previously, she was the dean of UCLA School of Law. For Rachel, The most important component of law school, especially the first year, is student engagement. So whether it's the Socratic method or something else, at the very least, you need a way for students to be active participants. You don't want them just sitting there taking notes. So... She took the opportunity during COVID to adopt what's called a flipped classroom. And so she shares videos of classes and lectures, breaks students up into teams, lets them engage with each other for peer-to-peer learning, and then everyone shows up to class for a robust discussion and nobody is caught off guard by these cold calls.
5: I still think it's important to ask questions and make people construct the knowledge themselves and not just hand it to people But I think we built a lot of scaffolding in. So, for instance, in this flipped classroom that I mentioned, people watch videos and they they see PowerPoint slides, they do the reading, and then I have problems that I assign in advance. And so a lot of the class is devoted to, you know, reviewing what the key principles are, but then doing the problem-solving. And I put people in teams and they know what to expect that for that part of the assigned material, they're gonna be leading the discussion. So you're not just blindsided like, wow, you showed up in court and it wasn't your case and the judge called on you, right? It's not like that. Um, so I think professors have modified it to make it more effective without foregoing the fundamental insight that students have to be active learners. They can't be passive and be successful.
0: So what started for Rachel as a method to combat the isolation of COVID and keep students engaged, now that she's shifted back into her normal classroom, she's kept that flipped class and she's had a lot of success with it. So that's an example where once the tried and true Socratic method just wasn't feasible anymore, schools, professors, they didn't really have a choice but to become innovative and it worked.
5: You know, I think what COVID did is it made us ask ourselves, what are the things we had to do because we were faced with an unprecedented emergency and what are the things that we learned that we should carry forward as kind of the silver lining in what was otherwise a very difficult episode and i thought that the team-based approach was one of my silver linings uh, the ability to do these videos and have people watch them and then come to class and really be focused on pulling the essence out of the material and solving problems. Formative feedback every week I think is really terrific. So there are just things that I felt I needed to do because of that experience, but I was able to also do it because of that experience.
1: Obviously COVID was an unprecedented situation, but even before then, there were professors who were taking steps to offer something different to law school students. One of them is Joshua Rosenberg. He's a professor at the University of San Francisco School of Law. And for the past 20 years, he's been teaching a 3L course called Interpersonal Dynamics. That gives students some useful communication skills before they enter the profession.
6: Someone once told me there was a course for graduates of law school where they just have people yell at them for four days. So they, get to, so they get used to what it's going to be like in a law firm. And I don't do that, but I encourage people to share their honest reactions with other people, hopefully communicating in a way that's not offensive. Things like nonviolent communication, basically about how to make I statements and focusing on What's going on inside your feelings, self-awareness, and then communicating that to other students. Uh, It's important to share positive feedback. And they also learn how to share negative feedback, uh, how to say things in a way, even if they're not positive, that other people can listen to.
1: This class is an elective, and Professor Rosenberg usually teaches it to a couple of groups of students no bigger than 12 per class. So that means there's also a waiting list. It's pretty popular. I think this is an interesting one to talk about, though, because while we're talking about the pitfalls of the Socratic method and um, things we can do about that, this is addressing another shortfall in the legal education system, and that's just those skills that are maybe a little bit of a softer skill that gets you by in a professional setting. So graduates and even law firms and professionals have reached out to Professor Rosenberg to say they really value students who learn those types of skills.
6: A lot of law school is focused on arguing against the opponent in front of a judge, using logic and rational arguments to convince a third party that your opponent is wrong and most interactions in law are not in front of a third party they're not trying to convince a judge you're negotiating or working with or working against one other person and the skills involved in convincing uh, and dealing effectively in a one-on-one relationship are very, very different from those involved in trying to convince a third party who's listening. You put down the other side, you show where they're wrong, try to make them look bad. But in most lawyering, you're not in front of the judge and arguing that way doesn't, isn't really very effective.
1: Classes like this interpersonal dynamic one do teach how to act like a lawyer as much as think like one, and that's pretty useful for students who are about to actually go into the profession for real. But when you go back to that 1L year and some of the solutions that might work there, there is an idea that we could offer a bit more flexibility to students early on to explore the aspects of the law that they find the most interesting. That is definitely something Catherine Young from GW advocates for
4: there's so much we could do to make law school a place that was more intellectually engaging to students and facilitated growth mindset, right? I mean, we could, for example, let students take an elective their first semester, right? I mean, there are a lot of classes like criminal law, we might imagine, or property, we might imagine, yes, we want students to take those classes. Do they have to take it their first year of law school? I would argue maybe not. I would argue maybe there are some classes that you could take at some point in law school, they would be required. But, um, you know, if you came into law school because you care about a specific subject area, it would be so wonderful if we could get students engaging with that subject area immediately. I mean, I talked to students, for example, who came to law school because they really care about intellectual property and music, say. Um, They may not get to even talk to anyone about those things for a whole year. That's really harmful for them. Um, law school would be so much more exciting for them if they could if they could engage immediately because things start to seem more applied,
1: Steve, you're in the front row. What have we learned about fixing law school today?
0: Amber, I think I'm ready for this one. So far, we've got more flexibility. We've got changing up the Socratic model to make it more transparent and engaging for students. And, uh, I hate the end of the podcast final exam. Why do we do it this way?
1: Yeah, law students hate that too. Uh, they don't want one final exam either. When we spoke to Katherine Young, she told us probably the most transformative thing law schools can do, even more important than ending the cold call, is actually switching to a more formative assessment process throughout the year.
0: Yeah, this is one of Catherine's biggest points. I mean, she says the one final exam, it's bad pedagogy. The research shows that time and again. And she says that it disproportionately negatively impacts first-generation students and students who don't have lawyers in the family.
4: There's just this huge class effect. I mean, so you you imagine, um, you know, a student who takes their first semester 1L year finals and, and gets straight Bs. Already there are clerkships they're never going to be eligible for, ever, simply because of that one first semester. Because the very first test they ever took in law school before anyone ever gave them any kind of guided feedback, they did poorly on. I mean, what we know from the, the you know, educational literature is that people do much better at learning when they have guided feedback, right? And really students only get that in law school, typically in their legal research and writing classes. Right? They get a chance to actually try out their reasoning, see how they do, get it corrected by someone who knows uh, the subject a lot better than they do, You know, give it another shot, get some feedback, right? But that's not how we teach our doctrinal classes. And I think we absolutely should. Students need practice applying these concepts, particularly if we want to equalize the experience for people, regardless of race, class, and gender.
1: I am so glad we have some professors out there pushing for classroom changes that could engage a broader array of students. I do definitely hope that this is a movement that just keeps growing because I know it would have vastly improved my own law school experience.
0: I mean, like we've mentioned throughout the two-part series now, these are tricky concepts to discuss. You can't say that the LSAT serves zero purpose in the admissions process, but I think we can question whether it's used effectively. And then the same goes with law school. There's no doubt that law school offers an incredible education with a very rewarding legal career at the end of it. But I think there are some important questions we need to answer about how the education is presented and whether it serves everyone equally well. Because if it's not, then it seems like the time to take a step back and assess whether some changes need to be made.
3: If law school is supposed to be a sort of analytic exercise where we push students thinking, then I think it's effective at that. Um, But the question is, at what cost? I think from my perspective, it's two things. There's a set of students, particularly students of color and women students who have raised concrete concerns for over 50 years about the marginalizing effect of the Socratic method. But then for the rest of the students who aren't voicing these kinds of complaints, they're not all that happy either. So isn't that a kind of environment that's ripe for innovation?
0: Thank you for listening to Law360 Explores, episode two. I wanna thank the folks who shared their insight with us for this episode. Jamie Abrams, Catherine Young, Rachel Moran, Joshua Rosenberg. Also a thank you to Kelly Marcano. He co-produced this podcast, wrote the music, designed the graphics and helped out in so many different ways. Amber McKinney not only co-hosted this series, she is also the executive producer of our podcast team and we couldn't do literally any of this without her help and guidance. Thank you so much, Amber, for all that you do. And a special shout out to the Law360 Newsroom and all of the dedicated reporters. They've published a ton of articles about law school and legal education reform. So make sure you're reading that coverage. We couldn't do a project like this without their help. And that concludes our two-part series. Thank you again very much for listening.